Grab your Bibles and open to the book of Psalms. You can crack it right down the middle. If you don't have a Bible or own one, there's one in the pew back in front of you. That's our gift to you. We want to give you a Bible today and turn it to Psalm 123 and give your attention to the reading of God's word today. Well, good morning, Westside. If you have the pew Bible, it is on page 574, Psalm 123. When you have that, let's stand up for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, make us have perpetual love and reverence for your holy name, for you have set us on pilgrimage. And you never fail to help and govern those whom you have set upon the the sure foundation of your loving kindness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Westside. My name is Parker Williams. I'm uh, one of the board members here, and I have the privilege of stepping in this morning for Jason. And so, to start off, if I were to ask you... What do you think, over the last 150 years, what piece of technology has shaped our lives and our outlooks and our values as Americans more than any other? I knew right there, right? We were going to think about that. That's good. The, the, the thing that's really shaped us most in the last few years. But what I want to submit this morning is that over the last 150 years, long before the cell phone, there's another piece of technology that has really shaped a lot of our values even further than that. And it's more so in the States than almost anywhere else in the world, and that's the automobile. For, the, for us as Americans, our love affair with cars has really shaped us as a people. It's how we mark many milestones, right? I'm sure you remember the first car you've got, the car you drove to prom, the car you drove home from after, after you got married, whatever aspect. We believe a lot of times that who we are, we can express who we are, and we show who we are to the world by what we drive, right? Now, whether that be a Camry or a Corvette, something that's real practical or something that's not at all, we're sharing something to the world about what we believe about ourselves, um, And really, that our love affair with automobiles have been formed by about three big people that really started this for us, right? There's Henry Ford, the, the, the uh, general-issued car, right? You could have any color Model T as long as it was black, right? Everybody had a Model T, and there was one thing that you could do there. But there were two other people that really shaped Uh, how we view our automobiles and and our our love affair with them. One was a guy named Alfred P. Sloan, and he would talk about it like this. His approach to the automobile was he was going to make a car for every person, for every purse, and for every purpose. So every person had one that they could identify with. No matter what aspect of the socioeconomic ladder you were on, there was one that you could afford and you could get in. But also there was one for every purpose, right? Whether you're going back and forth from point A to point B or you're hauling stuff, we've got a car to fit every one of them. But another guy, and who we're really going to look at this morning a little bit, is this guy named Harley Earl. It's a great picture, okay? You know Harley Earl from the tail fin, right? You recognize those on the, on the back of those cars? We really need to bring those back. 
right? I would love some tail fins. Or even the Ghostbuster car had those tail fins, right? That's a unique feature of it. Harley Earl's responsible for that. But he's responsible for something else as well. And even before Harley Earl, we started talking about it. But he's the one who first taught us to dream about the self-driving car. The self-driving car he introduced in 1956, the Firebird 2. Okay, the Firebird 2 had this, it was a beautiful vehicle, right? That thing's made out of titanium. Do you know how many they made? One, Uno, right? They didn't, like, oh, that's all we got. But one thing that this thing had, not only was the engine unique, this different kind of combustible engine, but they buried a metal strip down these special lanes in the highway to where you could navigate that car over, and there were radio towers that, that would pick you up, just like in an airport where you have those, the control towers, and they pick you up, and you could check out right? Self-driving cars. And they said, in 20 years, these are going to be everywhere. In, 1970, in 1956, they were saying in 20 years, they were going to be everywhere. Well, we're seeing them today with Tesla, right? Tesla's here. We're starting to see these cars that are doing really interesting things. But Harley Earl said this about what the, the, your journey should be like. He said, getting into a car should be like a vacation, should be like a vacation. So not only did this Firebird 2 have the self-driving feature, but when you hit that button, there was also an ice cream machine in the back, right? <laughs> so you could check out, hang out, get you some ice cream, check out, the, and, and play board games with your family while you're skipping the, des- the journey for the sake of that destination, right? Incredible. Last week, I heard a, an interview on NPR from a guy named uh, uh, Dan Albert who wrote this book called Are We There Yet? It's this new history of the American automobile. And he really focused a lot on the fact that self-driving cars are finally here. And he said this. He said, this is the most important thing about self-driving cars. He said, driverless cars are about efficiency. We want to get to our destination by ba- bypassing everything in between cheaper, faster, and with less effort. And we can do that now. So what in the world does all this have to do with Psalms? If you remember, we are in the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 120 to 131 are the Psalms of Ascent, where the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, would make pilgrimages every year to Jerusalem three times, and they would sing these songs as they went. These songs, as we're saying, is the psalm book of a nation on pilgrimage. They understood that this journey had massive implications for their destination and for who they were as a people. They weren't just checking out during this process. But the Israelites knew that their journey shaped their expectations of faith just like the way our journeys shape ours. We don't think of that very often. But our journeys here today shape oftentimes things that we don't realize they do. With things like self-driving cars, we import those expectations into other areas of our life like our faith. Just like the Israelites, through these psalms, were taking the advantage of the pilgrimage and allowing those aspects to shape their faith. It's a pilgrimage. Listen to this. In Psalm 84, a psalm just prior to this, a little bit earlier, before the Psalms of Ascent, the psalmist really sets up this idea. He says this in Psalm 84, 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on the highways to Zion. Or in the NIV says, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. And even then in Acts, early on in the birth of the church, Jesus has has ascended to heaven. His church, the disciples, the apostles are going out and doing incredible things. And when we hear them talked about, they're always called what? They're not called Christians. They're called followers of the way. 
There was a path that they were walking. There was a relationship that they were chasing after. And this led to different things. When they were attacked or, or accused by Felix, he said, I'm going after these followers of the way. See, faith has always been a pilgrimage. But we want to bypass the journey for the sake of the destination. We want to bypass it for the sake of the destination. Even what the Bible calls followers, right? Do you know how many times the word Christian is used in the Bible describing the followers of the way? Three. Carries the idea of having arrived. I'm a Christian. I've got it. I'm I'm having arrived. But what, what describes the follower of the way is this, a disciple. That word is used to describe the followers 269 times. That's a big deal. Um, one guy that we're really following along with through this, this series, uh, Eugene Peterson, he wrote this book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is a de- description of a disciple. He says it this way. We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. There is little enthusiasm for patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what early generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. That's why Jesus says things like this in Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many for the great gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So here's what we're working with this morning. For the disciple of Jesus, for those who are on the way, there is no shortcut for sojourners. That's what a pilgrim's called, a sojourner, somebody who's set out on a journey after something, a spiritual walk of, to a destination that is shaping you here and now. There's no shortcut for sojourners. So we're going to look at three things this morning, okay, in, in a number of different ways. Every pilgrimage has a particular path, a formative process, and every pilgrimage has an element of pain. Right? Doesn't that sound fun? Exciting? Okay, here we go on. The pilgrimage path, the pilgrimage is a path, not an interstate. It's a path, not an interstate. So to illustrate this, I want to tell you some stories about some journeys I've been on. I haven't been everywhere, but I've been real blessed to have a few really great trips in my life, some vacations and some journeys and travels that have kind of shaped who I am and shaped how I view things. One of which was about four or five years ago, we saved up for a long time and took this uh, trip to uh, Europe. We spent about three weeks traveling around, and what our travel agent told us at the time, when we told them everything that we wanted to do, they said, you're doing in three weeks what most people do in like two months, all right? So we got a lot of work to do. So we had to plan out every transfer, every flight, every train trip. We tried to take the trains in the middle of the night to not waste any time while we sleep, every ticket. Here's a picture of our itinerary. That thing's fat, all right? That, seriously, that is, that is nothing but our transfers, tickets, schedules, hotel reservations. We planned out every step of the way in order to skip the journey as much as we could to get to a destination and, and get whatever it had to offer. And that's sometimes how we expect the Christian life to be. We expect every step lined out for us, the next destination, the next transfer scheduled to where we know what to expect, how to get there, how to navigate it. But I don't think that's quite what it's like being a disciple of Jesus. It's kind of like the second trip I took. About, oh, it's probably been uh, 10 years ago or so now. I used to do a lot of 
outdoor hiking and climbing and spent a lot of time in the outdoors in college. Well, there was this uh, uh, ministry over in, in Eminence, Discovery Ministries, that do, do these wilderness excursions. And there were a group of students there at Ozark Christian College where I went to school that went on this 10-day wilderness excursion. And what it was, it was 10 days out in the middle of nowhere in the Ozarks. The first five days you spent navigating the river and going off on different things. And the next five days you spent navigating and, and hiking through the Ozarks. Well, have you ever, are you familiar with these? Check this out. A topo map. Is anybody familiar with the topo map? It's not quite like Google, all right? Google gives you the dot here and the dot there, and you've got the line and the turnings. Or do you remember MapQuest? You remember printing off MapQuest directions that gave you the next step? Well, on this wilderness excursion, we had leaders of the day, okay? And the, the, our guide, who basically all he did was keep us from just killing ourselves and let us run everything else, he would say, okay, on this topo map, you got to get here. Here's your destination. Here's your one assignment for today. I'm not telling you anything else. I'm not showing you how to get there, but here's your destination. And so our leader, who everybody had to follow, would take a compass and would try to navigate. A topo map has nothing but geographical features on it. So they would have to read what's going on around them to plot their path. They might go three, four, read everything wrong, go three or four miles out of the way, and we might not get to our destination that day. Sometimes the Christian faith is like this. We're giving nothing more than our assignment for today that we're supposed to be faithful in. And sometimes the path is not marked. Most of the time, the path is not marked. And yet, we know that we serve a good God who's doing something on purpose. Even though the path is not marked and we lose our step most of the way or go five or six miles out the wrong direction or completely lose our way, we still have somebody there who gave us the assignments walking along behind us with us. But what are you supposed to do in those moments? That's the hard question, right? We've got our destination, but what are we supposed to do in the here and now when things aren't lining up and we don't have our next step and MapQuest hasn't given us the next turn? Look at our text this morning, verse 2. It's all about the eyes. Behold, as the eyes of the servant look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. A master and a mistress, a servant. It's got this idea of a master and a boss, right? So what, what kind of things do we look to our bosses for? You don't show up to work and then do whatever you feel like doing that day, right? Your boss gives you certain tasks, and you have to look after what they're saying to do, and we follow these things. So the first thing our master gives us is the work that we're to be doing. But that's nice and all. It's wonderful. But sometimes the path isn't marked clearly. The path is narrow. But there's not always signposts. So we get here. And we hit to where we know the work we're supposed to be doing, but yet it, when it's not clear, we want to hit autopilot. We want to say, well, I don't know. I'm just looking for God's will in my life right now. I just haven't found God's call on me right now. I'm just looking for the one, right? We're out here looking for the one. And, we're try and when we say things like that, we bypass the season that we're in, hoping for a new destination. But really what we're seeing is that God is calling us to just be faithful in the ambiguous season that we're in, to be faithful to the hard relationships that we're forced to, to meet up with every day, that even though the path is struggling right now and I'm not to my destination, this is the path I'm on, that the job I'm in, I'm called to be faithful in right now, that this age that my children are in, right? Come on, somebody, right? I have a three-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, 
And sometimes we want to look past this season for the next one. But God's calling us to be faithful in this season with these people at this time. And if in the text we see here, until God, Lord our God, has mercy upon us. Today, rest in the assurance to know that our God is good, that he has mercy upon us, and that he knows when we're ready for the next season. Well, I said earlier, you know, sometimes we, uh, we, we think that we project an image of ourselves to the world through what we drive. I used to have a Harley, emphasis on used to. I traded that, sold that thing a little over a year ago and got a minivan, right? <laughs> That's still a prayer request, still, okay? Still, we're still doing that, all right? One thing they teach you when you get a motorcycle and you go through the class the first thing you do is you're going you're gonna to want to hit those curves hard, right? You're going to try to hug those things, and that's wonderful. That's one part of the reason you have a motorcycle. But when you come in hot on a curve, and all you look at is that tree on the side of the curve that you don't want to go to, if you stare at that, you're going to hit that tree. You're going to lay that thing on its side, okay? What they teach you to do, first thing, is to don't point your eyes at the problem, but look ahead to where you want to be. Turn your head up the curb, and when you do, your body will follow as well. And the, the motorcycle, you can get it to navigate that, to, to turn more effectively. And we get in these hard seasons of life, these ambiguous seasons of life, and we start looking at other things. We take our eyes off of Jesus and being faithful in the task we're given, and we start looking at things like this, other people's progress, right? Joe over here is doing really well. Right? He's got the fat bank account, the new car, all that. He's doing well. Why can't my journey be like that? Or this Joe over here, he seems to have really knocked that addiction. He seems really content at where he is, and he's praising God. And my journey's hard right now. That's taking our eyes off of the path that Jesus has set us on right now. I'm taking our eyes off being faithful in this season. Other people's progress we take our eyes and we focus instead on the problems. And here's the first thing we do. We start looking for shortcuts. We start looking to make this thing more efficient. How can I hit autopilot with that ice cream maker? Because this thing's hard right now. But the second thing that we look to our boss for is this. I have wages down is the word. I don't really like that. We're looking for sustenance. From a boss, right? The boss is, is, is ensuring that we have the things that we need at the time that we do to do the job before us. So does our Savior. In the same way, He is ensured that we have everything we need in this season to navigate it effectively. Back to our text. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till He has mercy upon us. But we don't believe He's good most of the time. Because we try to add stuff to it. But listen to what, 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 what's said in Matthew 7. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? And if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We have a good Father who knows to give good gifts. But in the season that we're in, on the pilgrimage faith, most of the time, these seasons are for purging, for getting rid of stuff. It's our second point this morning. The path of the pilgrim is a formative path of purging. That's not fun. On this wilderness excursion, I went on, and any hiking, how many of you have hiked before? You've taken either an afternoon hike or gone on a multi-day hike, right? 
You know that your first time out, your first time trying this, you're packing everything you can in that bag. You've got your MacBook Pro, you've got your cast iron oven, you've got three books just in case you get bored, and you might take a pizza oven along just in case you find somewhere to plug that thing in, right? We think we have all this stuff. I used to go at it like this. My dad taught me this saying when I was young, and it's, it's carried with me forever. It's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Have you ever heard that? So that was my, my approach to hiking, which is terrible. I learned one that was more important. Ounces make pounds, okay? So here's a picture of me on, on a wilderness excursion. That's actually on that same 10-day one. And uh, what you don't see there is that that's on day like seven when I've already gotten rid of half the stuff in my pack, all right? The path, the pilgrimage is as much about what you leave behind as what you take with you. The path itself is a path of purging as we get rid of things. So enter into that thought, what Jesus says in Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth because we don't believe he's going to take care of us, so what do we do? We lay up for ourselves things that we think are going to get us through the journey. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here again, Psalm 84, blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So what kind of things are we carrying along with us? Tyler read earlier out of Hebrews, let us throw off every weight that so easily hinders, pause, comma, especially the sin that so easily binds, to run the race that is before us. What are we carrying along? You know what I carry along most of the time, and I think you do as well? Bitterness, right? Sally or Joe or whoever over here hurt me, and I don't trust that God's going to make this right or care for me in this season, so I'm going to carry this thing along just in case I need it because it hurts, and it's a cast iron skillet strapped to my pack. It weighs us down. Bitterness. But where I want to go this morning is something that we might not often consider as something that's weighing us down that we're hanging on to. Previous walks with God. Many of us now may find ourselves in a period of deconstruction of our faith. Something hard that has, has caused us to go through a transition to where things aren't always adding up for us. Uh, Pete ends in his book, The Sin of Certainty, calls these uh-oh moments. Uh-oh Right? So these are when the theological system that I've crafted to answer all of my hard questions in life all of a sudden don't fit this question. Divorce, death of a loved one, whatever it may be, all of a sudden that system that we've been taught our whole lives and that we've been leaning on forever and that has given us the easy answers to hard questions, uh-oh, it's not doing what I need it to do. Pete Inns also says this is those times when our uh, uh, theological antivirus software all of a sudden doesn't kick in and knock these questions out before we can stop them. That they pass by that software and they hit us where it hurts and we don't have an answer. And the peace that we are accustomed to is no longer there. Statistics tell us that 44% of people, that's almost half in this room, will go through some major faith transition in their lifetime. That may either be to a new tradition, a new walk, or they just throw it all out altogether. 44%. That means nearly half in here are going through that at some point in their life. And, and where I'm about to go this morning is maybe that needs to be like 
for some of us that have been walking with Jesus for a long time. So here, let me, let me read this to tell, show you a little bit more what I'm talking about. You're familiar with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? I think you could pull an illustration out of the Chronicles of Narnia every week, and we'd still be good, right? But um, we're in the third book, and what happened is the children have gone back to the real world, and all of a sudden they, they get on the train, and they wake up one day back in Narnia, and it's been hundreds of years since they were in Narnia, in, in Narnia's world. And what they're getting in the middle of this battle, and there's this conflict, and Aslan's nowhere to be seen. Nobody's heard from Aslan in forever, and Lucy's running around, don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden, when it gets really thick and really hard, later in the book, she finds Aslan, and she says this. And then, oh joy, for there he was, the huge lion shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into a large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow you will find me bigger. I think a lot of times when we hit these uh-oh moments in our life, it's because we haven't allowed God to be bigger than our questions and our answers. That sometimes when we hit these uh-oh moments, we're still leaning on the Sunday school faith that we inherited 15, 20, 30, however many years ago. And those images of God and those walks with God took care of us then, but they weren't designed to take us through this part of the journey. There are times that we have to lay down old walks of God and trust him in the season that we're in now. Because if we still hold on to those other ones, we think those old ones that got us through the past ones are going to be a shortcut to the next season. And then there's the uh uh-oh, and they don't. It's whenever... It's whenever, whatever you've run into has sparked this in you, when you begin asking big questions of a little faith. There's one preacher who says, maybe you have fact-based answers and all you have, fact-based questions and all you have are faith-based answers when you approach them with the church. Maybe, like for me, it was, it was not necessarily always hard moments in life, but it was this seemingly irreconcilable problem of science and what we know to be true from the natural world around us and what we see in Scripture. And I hid an uh-oh moment in my faith. And it's, it took a time of purging, a time of deconstruction to learn where God was leading me to in this season and to reimagine how big our God might actually be. But here's what I want you to know, and I think you know, is that these seasons are hard. These seasons are hard. They're uncomfortable. The community that we're in may not be able to handle them. Relationships that we have get strained if we start importing these things all over. But let's look again at at Psalm 84.6, the psalm I read earlier. Right after he says, the people are blessed whose heart are on the pilgrim way, the psalmist says this. He says, as they go through the valley of Baca. You know what Baca means? It means the valley of tears. They make it a place of springs. Not if they go, as they go, when they go. They go through the Valley of Springs. These are things that we can't bypass and can't shortcut around, and yet they challenge the very foundations of who we are. This is the third aspect of pilgrimage. There is no bypassing the Valley of Pain. 
Sometimes our journey has to take us there. Sometimes on that topo map, the only way to that other destination is to go through a really hard spot. But we want to bypass them. We try to find easy ways to get past our doubts, the hard circumstances of life. We try to forsake the hard questions, anticipating that they're going to isolate us from the struggles that we find ourselves in, and we're dead wrong. That maybe... Maybe this is the exact spot that God is, Jesus is, is hoping to lead us through. To, to, to make our impression and our ideal and our, our image of God much bigger than anything that we have known before. So what I want to ask, it, you may be going through this process right now. There are many of us who are, whether we want to admit it or not, that we're starting to go through this. And maybe you're starting to deconstruct aspects of your faith. And this is something that we don't talk a lot about in church. But what I want to do is step into that. If you're going through a period of deconstruction, I have four things that you need to hang on to, four things that we need to look at today. Number one, don't ignore your doubts and your uh uh-oh moments. And this goes to you whether you're walking through a period of deconstruction or you're not. Don't ignore your doubts or your uh uh-oh moment. You remember in in, uh, the Gospels after Jesus is raised and, and he goes and he runs into Thomas, right, in the upper room, and we always say, oh, doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas. But really, what Jesus says to him is not, don't doubt Right? He doesn't say doubts are bad. He says, Thomas, don't nurture this doubt. It's the same word as gestation, of, of, of the process of pregnancy. Don't allow this thing to, to grow in the doubts. Nurture your faith. Nurture your faith. He steps into everything, but he tells him to go through the doubts too. So often it's the doubts that God allows us to walk through that, he, that is the tool that deconstructs these aspects of him that are wrong and false and not able to sustain us through the rest of the journey. The doubts and the uh-oh moments are there for a reason. Don't waste them. Don't waste them. But the second thing is this. Deconstruct to reconstruct. You can't stay in a season of deconstruction. You can't do it. It's not something that's meant to carry you through the rest of your life. It may be a period and a hard valley you walk through, but remember, this is only one aspect of the the journey. Deconstruct to reconstruct. That means big questions. We say this all the time. Big questions require big work. Most of the time, that means you're not going to figure it out on a weekend with some Google searches, if that's what it is. Sometimes these are long seasons of deconstruction. But remember that through this deconstruction, we're moving to a time when we can reconstruct something that's meaningful, something that, has, that, that gives God the honor that he's due. Deconstruct or reconstruct. But many times, this season of deconstruction is something that has to happen. It's something that God may be leading us into. Uh, again, C.S. Lewis says this, My idea of God is not a divine idea. It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. He is the great iconoclast. Could we not almost say that the shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. This leads me to my third point. Don't ignore the spark of mystery. Don't ignore the spark of mystery. No matter how many conversations I have with people who are in this this, this period of, of deconstruction, they're walking through this hard season where they don't know what to believe, 95% of the time, there's something going on in there that's drawing them to something new. 
There's some little spark of faith that, that, that is still in, t- telling them to ask the hard questions and to move through that. What if it's God himself that's leading you into this season? And he tells you the same thing he told Thomas. Lean into the faith as well. Walk through the doubts, yes. Walk through the hard times, yes. But at least have the intellectual humility to, to, to be open to the idea that God himself might be doing something as well. Don't ignore the spark of mystery. But fourth, and, and, and finally for, for this series, stay engaged with safe community. The moment you forsake all community and you ditch everybody is the moment that deconstruction bleeds into every aspect of your life. And it's not the last piece of your life that all of a sudden gets tossed out. We have to stay in safe community, whatever that may look like. Maybe that's somebody safe who you can have conversations with who's able to walk with you. And, and just for another point, if you run into somebody who's in this period, the last thing they need is an apologetics lesson or be hit with another Bible verse. Most of the time, it's just saying, I love you, and I'm here with you, and I'll listen, and I'll walk with you through this season. We've had enough of people just hitting each other over the heads with Bible verses when what they need is someone to just walk with them on the path for a little while. Stay engaged with community, but know as well that if you're going through this process, not everybody's going to be here with you. The person next to you might not be at the same place on the pilgrimage that you are, and you have to acknowledge that. You have to understand that just because you're wrestling with these problems and have come to a new conclusion, everybody else might not be there at the same time. So that brings friction. That brings some conflict sometimes, and we see that in the text. We see that in the text. Listen to this. We have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Who, are, who is that? Are those bad non-Christians that whatever? Or those maybe, I think, people in the faith oftentimes who have forsaken the journey, who have constructed a theological system that answers every hard question for them, It's this, it's people that have opted out of the pilgrimage and directed their eyes inward. They've taken their eyes off following Jesus through the hard times and their answers now stand in his place. One who believes that they have bypassed faith and have already arrived at the answers. This is who Proverbs, you may have run across this in Proverbs. You ever heard this when Proverbs calls somebody a fool? That's uncomfortable. Right? Bible calling somebody a fool. But here's what Proverbs is saying. The, the one who has forsaken the pilgrimage and who has all the answers is the fool of Proverbs. Listen to this in Proverbs. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. They would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. They wouldn't listen. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and will have the fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroy them. Or this 12.15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. These are the people whose thought system is impenetrable. These are the people who have all the answers. These are the people who, when they hit a hard, complicated idea or a nuanced discussion, their politics tell them how to answer it. When our politics tell us how to answer every nuanced conversation, we may be the fool of Proverbs. I feel like Jeff Foxworthy walking through some of this stuff, right? You may be the fool of Proverbs. How about this? If you don't let people talk, if you're always cutting people off, 
you may not have the ability to listen right now. You may be walking in the way of the fool of Proverbs. If you're not able to take any confrontation on anything, any, any contradiction, if we have to be right all the time, we may be the fool of Proverbs. If there's no room for a nuanced conversation on a tough issue, like immigration or abortion or whatever it may be, we may be walking the path of the fool of Proverbs and opting out of the pilgrimage to where God is walking us to something new and bigger. Do we have a clear religious or political answer for every question? Sometimes this means trusting Jesus when things don't quite add up. To walk faithfully in pilgrimage after Jesus means that it's okay to not have all the answers. That it's okay to know that the season I'm in is hard and I don't know what's coming next. But it means trust in the season where we're at now. To be faithful in what we have been assigned at this moment, at this time in our life. No matter where you're at on the pilgrimage, the call of Jesus is always the same. The direction of our eyes and the direction of your trust. So maybe you're not in a season of deconstruction. Maybe you're new to this Christian journey and you've just now stepped out on the pilgrimage Maybe it's deconstructing your past life as well and learning to look towards Jesus. That's great. That's wonderful. That's part of the path at every stage in the path. Or maybe, maybe you're still leaning on that old Sunday school faith that just isn't cutting it anymore. Know that that's okay. And that God's walking us through something new. The path is always the same. Jesus is saying this, to trust me in the path, to step out. Maybe that step out means baptism. Maybe that means walking through the gate. Baptism is not the end of the journey. It's simply walking through the gate at the beginning of the journey as God starts to purge you of all these things and build you into something new. Or maybe it's trust me in the process, that in this season now God is working something good in your life if you don't try to bypass it and you try to see him working in it now. Or trust me in the pain, even in the pain, even in the pain. And I don't know for some of you that strikes a hard chord even in the pain that we're, we're walking through right now, when we give that to Jesus and we trust that he can make something good out of something that is not good. Trust me in the pain. So I have these last three questions for the road. Before you come up to this, uh, the, the communion table to pick up bo- Jesus' body and blood broken for you, I want you to ask these three questions of yourself to diagnose where you are. Take a moment and sit in your seat or stand as we sing and think about these three things before we come forward. Where have I ceased in my pilgrimage? Maybe that's part of your faith. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something with a spouse or or a child or a work relationship or whatever else. Where have you ceased chasing God and following Jesus and keeping your eyes on him in your pilgrimage? What is the next step you need to take to step out on the path? Maybe that's baptism. Maybe that's going to somebody and confessing something to them. Maybe that's being a good friend to somebody who is in the process of deconstruction and whatever that means. And lastly, what are you trying to carry through your pilgrimage that needs to be left behind? Is it this this idea that we have to have the answers? Or maybe it's building up some kind of safe life that can insulate me from these things? Or maybe it's a bitterness of a relationship that's really dragging you down. Those things weigh heavy. That's what happens here at the table. That here at the table, we come forward and we lay down and we purge these things and we pick up Jesus' body and blood broken for us as sustenance for the journey. 
Baptism is the washing and placing us on the journey. The Eucharist and the elements are the sustenance for the journey. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for being a good God, a merciful God who cares for us at every stage of life's way. We ask that you continue to mold us and to shape us and call us out into the hard places of life. But Lord, we also ask that you not leave us there empty, that you meet us there with your good graces. We know that you've told us you will and that you lead us into a greater knowledge of you, Lord, greater love of our neighbor and brother. And we do all this in your name. Amen. May the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ keep you in everlasting life.